1: Vikings are still rolling, 7-2, five-game winning streak, entering Sunday's game against the Rams at U.S. Bank Stadium. Tom Pelissero in for Patrick Royce on the ride. Chris Revers is here, so is Manny Hill. Kevin Seifert from ESPN.com going to join us shortly. I will be there on Sunday for that game Certainly not the way that you thought you were going to get an NFC showdown at this point, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is indicative of everything, I think, across the NFC right now. I'm not sure how many people and I didn't pick division winners or anything this year, but if you if you hit across the board on Minnesota with Case Keenum, Philadelphia, New Orleans, and the Rams being your division leaders going into week eleven, I would hope you made a lot of money.
0: Yeah, no kidding.
1: Off of having doing that, that'd be a strange prop bet. Week eleven division leaders, but there have been a lot of surprises. These two teams, I think, for different reasons, fall into that category. For the Rams, it's it's an odd situation because I think we all knew, and talking to scouts within the league over the past few years, it's not like they were ever devoid of talent. Right. It was people were baffled. That the Rams could not get more out of their talent. They turned Todd Gurley into an invisible man. Been the rookie of the year in 2015. And all of a sudden, was not nearly that caliber a player.
0: Does Does what's happening with the Rams this year kind of show that Jeff Fisher really is a buffoon? I don't know. I've always thought he's an overrated head coach. I really have.
1: I mean, you look at his track record over the years. He was kind of Mr. 500, right? He had a lot yeah. of 7 and 9, he 8 8 one seasons. He had one great run to he the Super Bowl. He did go to the Super Bowl with the Titans in the 99 season, yep. I believe it was. Yep. Yep. Uh, I think that you also have to hand it to Sean McVay. It's not as if he just evened this thing out. Sean McVay is really good, and everybody talked about that back when he was in Washington. The only question on McVay was, is somebody really going to hire a 30-, 31-year-old head coach back in January? That's where he surprised people when all of a sudden he came onto the radar. He was one of the first people that teams put in requests to hire. The 49ers, the Rams. I know the Cardinals, had Bruce Arians retired, would have been in that mix too. But he was so young. That's what everybody said was, this guy might be a year or two away. When you're around him, and I talked with Sean for a while yesterday, I'll relay some of that conversation in, on pregame Sunday on NFL Network. You just you, you can see it. You can understand where that command comes from and why they buy it in the room. But it's not just about personality and it's not just about approach. It's also about knowing what the hell you're doing. Mm-hmm. Being able to talk not just offense, but be able to talk defense. Somebody who knows him well said you know, one of the things that he really impressed people with was he could go into the defensive meeting rooms And communicate with those guys just like Wade Phillips does.
0: Well, and what he did, too, is almost the same way that Zimmer approached his job with the Vikings initially. In that, he was going to take care of the defense and he was going to let Norv, essentially, run the offense. And that's what he did bringing Wade Phillips in as his defensive coordinator.
1: But his ability to cross over, though, into that room, too, and speak to the entire team. You need that talent as an NFL coach, just the more that I've talked to people through the years. The people who have failed, there are some brilliant coaches offensive and defensive coordinators who are not built to be head coaches yeah, because they don't have that command in the room because they can't speak the same language as everybody in the locker room. When times get tough, they don't know how to get to the other side. They might be able to get out of it schematically, but there's a lot more than scheme. There's a lot more than play calling involved in running an entire team. Different approaches work. Sean McVay is completely different as a human than Mike Zimmer. Just in terms of just interacting with them the way that they are, the way that their persona is. I think Zimmer is more, I guess, for lack of a better term, old school in that regard. He's going to know how to be hard on people. He came up under Bill Parcells. Parcells knew how to get hard on people when things were good. And then love them up when things were tough. Sure. With Sean, it's a very positive outlook. Not that he's not going to be real about things. Not that he's not going to say things are bad when they're bad. But... His entire approach has been different. And it's certainly a lot different than Jeff Fisher, too, which is another swing. Defensive coach to offensive coach, their personalities are different. More than anything, they've just they've been smarter about how they're utilizing their players. You know, they're, they're approaching it from a matchup perspective, and it is a matchup league. Well, I just and the see- way that McVeigh's been able to work with the quarterback mm-hmm. and the other people yeah. he's put around him, with Matt LaFleur as the coordinator, with Greg Olson, who's been a a coordinator in the league for a long time is the quarterback's coach. There's a lot of good people that they've surrounded him with. And the thing that they realized with Goff last year was, yeah, the guy got beat around and they lost a ton of games and it was a bad team, but he also came into a really difficult situation where they were already doomed. Everybody knew people were getting fired. There were a lot of people that weren't going to be back. Yep. And your rookie quarterback has got to step in and go, okay, guys, All right, let's go." Get here him. we <laughs> go. And the way that he was able to come through that said a lot to, uh, to the coaching staff Around there. The Vikings are surprising because not only do you lose the quarterback, who was the replacement for the quarterback from mm-hmm. Teddy Bridgewater to Sam Bradford last year. Bradford lights it up week one, then has a knee injury that nobody in that building thought was even going to keep him out in week two, much less virtually the entire season. He gets hurt, you go to Case Keenum, you go back to Bradford very briefly, then back to Keenum again, and you're you're cruising along here. Not only did you lose the quarterback, you lost the running back. You lost your best offensive player. Yeah. Dalvin Cook. In week four of the season, and that was a turning point coming out of that, how they were going to get through, because they were in a string of three division games there, to come back that following week, find a way against Chicago on the road to get a win. I don't know that, and it's tough to get into the business of who is a Super Bowl contender and who's not, because part of it's health who gets to the end of the season in a good place, you've still got really solid perennial programs like Seattle. And yes, even the Packers that find ways year in and year out to get there at the end. You got a team like the Eagles that's really rolling right now. But in a jumbled NFC, both these teams have performed really well to this point. Which brings us to the quarterback decision that the Vikings had this week, that as I examined it, and as I spoke to people with other teams watching this, everyone had the same question. They're not really thinking of going to Bridgewater now, are they? Nobody benches quarterbacks when you're on a five-game winning streak and you're leading your division.
0: Let me ask you a question, because you're close. You're obviously there a lot at Winter Park. I contend that Zimmer, what Zimmer did earlier this week, was to send Case the message of, this is how close you are to be standing next to me when the offense is on the field.
1: You also could send that message behind closed doors, which I know that Zimmer made clear he did. Sure. Said you can't have those turnovers. If you rewind to last week's game, and we're dealing in hypotheticals here, but if Case Keenum comes out and throws two interceptions, Teddy Bridgewater in that game in yeah, the first quarter, right. you yeah. might be making a change. Instead, Keenum had done so much good. I mean, he lit it up oh, yes. in the first half. Overall, <laughs> it was still a winning performance. We tend to get micro-focused on, well, he gave the ball away a couple times. They were up 17 points. Should he throw that ball to Kyle Rudolph on the outbreaking route in double coverage? No! But that's that's Case Keenum's entire career. Okay. What what guys in that locker room love, what they've told me from the time he came in was that dude cuts it loose. Like he goes out there and he just plays. Like he flings it, he'll give us shots to go make plays. That's what people love about him. That's also what gets him in trouble. <laughs> He's always been somebody who takes shots, which is sort of the entire opposite of how Teddy Bridgewater has been. Bridgewater and Keenum, among all qualifying passers over the past four years, are two of the bottom in terms of touchdown-to-interception ratio. But how they get there is completely different. With Bridgewater, it's been because he's thrown the ball underneath a lot. Because deep ball accuracy and trajectory has been something that scouts have questioned on him since he was in college. That was something they worked a ton on in the preseason training camp, the offseason, in 2016, last year before he got hurt. I sat down three days before Bridgewater blew out his knee with Scott Turner, who was the quarterback's coach at the time, Norv's son, Watch tape. He was going through all these different throws from camp, showing it. They had worked on things mechanically, like keeping Bridgewater's elbow up, transferring his weight. But it was also about want to. It was also about going, yeah, I've got the nine route here. I can make that throw. But I can also take this shot deep. Mm -hmm. I've moved the safety with my eyes. I'm going to take this shot. They were very excited about where he was going. Bridgewater was on the right track. But... It's been 680-odd days or something like that since he last played in a regular season game. Everybody said he's looked good in practice. He's moving around. His arm does look strong, and I've seen him in the locker room. like He's physically bigger. He's built in the upper body. He's gained weight. But nobody can say with certainty what the guy is going to be when he gets into a game. If you were losing, that'd be intriguing. But when you're winning, when you're playing well, that's also the thing that makes you say, let's not mess this up before we need to, especially with a guy in Teddy Bridgewater who frankly needs all the time that he can possibly get. I want to get Kevin Seifert's opinion on this, as well as Greg Olson's assignment. Part-time announcer, part-time spy in the booth for Fox on Sunday when he joins us next. Kevin Seifert with me, Tom Pelissero, in for Royce on the ride.
0: Talking Purple right now on The Ride with Roycey.
1: Kevin Seifert from ESPN. It's Kevin Seifert.
0: Here with Kevin Seifert. We have ESPN's Kevin Seifert. It's
1: ESPN.com's NFL Nation reporter, Kevin Seifert, presented by Mystic Lake. Tom Pellicero in for Royce. Kevin, have you been able to contain your outrage about Greg Olson being a part of the Fox <laughs> broadcast team this week?
2: I am actually thrilled by that story because it is peak NFL, and it brings us back to the very best moments of in my mind at least, of covering the NFL. No more worrying about the kneeling protest. no more, uh, you know, Jerry Jones versus Roger Goodell. Let's talk about re- and experience real NFL stories like this.
1: i I understand where the Vikings would think this is inappropriate. it's It's relatively unprecedented when you're talking about a player who is going to. Face your team in three weeks. Yeah, I, I'd be curious about the entire backstory about how this comes to pass. Yeah, you know, I'm, because I, it's it's yeah. so outside the box for a league that's so regimented in terms of what you do and don't do, and knowing that you know the general level of paranoia and everything else. How does it come to pass? And now nobody seems to do anything other than shrug when it comes up.
2: I'm actually surprised. You know, when it first came up, my first thought was, how would the Panthers be very happy with that? Here's a guy who. <laughs> Uh, injured, you know, tr- almost back but not quite, uh from my understanding, and and re- so still in the rehab situation. And they have, they have the weekend, and he's going to make an extra trip. You know, that that to me, like if I were the, I, I'm shocked the Panthers didn't put the Kibosh on and say we want you off your feet, we want you resting. We have a playoff team, blah blah blah. Uh, that's where I thought that you know the outrage might come from, but apparently they're okay with it, or they're just not going to challenge Greg, who is. Uh, By all accounts, you know, an all-world community and guy and and a great citizen and all the above that you can imagine. Uh, I do understand that the Vikings would probably wish that there weren't an active player in the booth, but I doubt highly that any uh, outcomes of of games or playoff races will be determined by Greg Olson's presence in the in the in the uh, in the press box this weekend.
1: Over under halftime of the Thanksgiving game at Detroit that we see Teddy Bridgewater take a meaningful snap for the Vikings?
2: I would I would, be surprised if it's this week. You know, I, I think uh, Mike Zimmer is is itching to get him on the field. And I, and I can see where he's coming from. You know, they have a long and emotional, sentimental history. He trusts him implicitly. He knows what kind of person he is. And if you were to compare the styles of play between Teddy Bridgewater and Case Keenum, you would probably – and you know Mike Zimmer, you know that he would probably be more inclined to, to, to be interested in a guy who doesn't take quite as many risks and, uh, as, as a Case Keenum. Uh, Teddy's a, a much more cautious player. Um, and I think, you know, he, he couldn't possibly have come up with a rationale to get him to start this game on Sunday. Uh, but I do think that the first mistake that comes up, is, you know, you better look at the sideline because it wouldn't be surprising to see Teddy, you know, whether it's a near interception or interception or a fumble snap or anything that provides a semblance of an organic reason to get Teddy on the field. I think that's when it's going to happen, and it could be this weekend.
1: I made a mistake with even the expanded 280-character limit on Twitter trying to pack in a thought, not an opinion, but just some facts the other day stating that the fact that, number one, it's been 680-odd days since we've seen Teddy Bridgewater Mm -hmm. in a real game, and number Mm -hmm. two, Teddy Bridgewater, Pro Bowl quarterback in 2015, had a lower passer rating than Case Keenum has now. I did not in any way intend to say that a three-point difference in passer rating means Case Keenum is a better quarterback than Teddy Bridgewater. The point was more so, when you're winning, when you're doing things right, the odds of making a change plummet just because it's so hard to win Five games in a row in the NFL, and it almost seems as if, for some people, based upon the number of uh, the amount of vitriol I got in the replies (laughs) to that tweet, that people have romanticized what Teddy Bridgewater was and can be as a quarterback. He was on the right track, but this is not like you've got Prime Tom Brady ready to come back here. You've got a player who was an ascending young guy. He's twenty five years old, and he had a major knee
2: injury and hasn't played in twenty two months. Right. I mean, I, I and I clearly remember what the sense was that we had about Teddy right before the injury was that this was when he was getting ready to take that huge big step to go from, you know, competent starter to top ten type player. But he hadn't done it yet. You know, right. all the all the signs were there that he he had that great training camp. He had a, gr- a really good preseason, but to the extent that that matters. And and all the uh, suggestions and the evidence that we had was that he was in fact ready to make a, a significant leap, but. Case Keenum has played better this year than Teddy Bridgewater has ever played in his NFL career. And so that, to me, like, should be the period end of story discussion about who deserves to start right now. Um, And, uh, you know, whether, but, you know, whether the assumption is that Case will eventually regress to the mean and and have some bad games because that's what he's done throughout his career. Uh, You know, it sure is nice to have a Teddy Bridgewater there, but, uh, the idea that that this was that that he's ready to reclaim the crown, you know, he wasn't wearing the crown. You know, he was the starter because he was the best quarterback on the team at that time. Um, but he's not right now, at least this week. It, it would be
1: fascinating, and I, I do agree with you that it would not be surprising if Keenum comes out and plays in the first half this weekend, like he did in the second half last week in Washington. If we see Teddy Bridgewater come yeah. into the game on Sunday, I'll be fascinated to see at that point. How does the offense evolve? Number one, you're talking about different skill sets between the Mm -hmm. two guys, but number two, their entire approach, the way they play the game is polar opposite in terms of Keenum, nothing's kind of by the book, and he does fling it around. That's his gift and his curse, which is he'll Mm -hmm. cut it loose. He doesn't care. He'll throw the ball down the field. With Bridgewater, the biggest thing that they were working with him on in 2016 was, number one, just making better throws down the field, but number two, having the want to, having the confidence that I'm going to see this throw – and I'm going to make it. I'm not just going to take the checkdown. There's nothing wrong with that. It's an efficient style of play, but part of the thing that's made the Vikings more effective here is they are taking those shots. Case Keenan's gotten lucky a couple times when people have dropped interceptions, but they've made a bunch of big plays down the field too.
2: Yeah, and it's fascinating because the, the added the added uh, variable there is they have two. There's two different offense coordinators. The offense coordinator has changed yes. in Minnesota between the time when Teddy was the starter and when Case. So we we can absolutely look at what they're doing now and say this is much more downfield passing, much more chunk plays, much more aggressive than it was uh, uh, under the North Turner scheme. But is that because of the scheme or is it because of the quarterback? If you go back in Case Keenum's career, he's always been a guy, as you said, for better or for worse, that has driven it down the field and, you know, read high to low and and has no problem taking that high read. Um, Petty was – and, again, was this part scheme or was this part – was this just him – you know the, the the memory I always have in the, uh, of him is you know the drop back and then the scramble to the right, you know, looking for somebody, and as he's backing up and eventually throwing it away. Very few mistakes, but very few risks taken either. And so I don't know. You know, somebody pointed this out, you know, to me the other day you know, when I was arguing that Case is clearly a, a better or more productive downfield passer. But, you know, we we I guess we don't know for sure if if Pat Shermer's scheme has really created that environment or if it's the case but to think that teddy would start immediately throwing you know a 51 yard pass just to find digs downfield on the third play of a game or if he'd be looking for all these deep outs to to, to Adam a I, I don't know um but that that is the that is the difference and and i don't know what's the what's the root cause but i imagine we'll find out before the end of the year
1: Shermer deserves a ton of credit just for adapting to the personnel that he has and being able to make right. sure that with all the changes at quarterback and running back, everything else that uh, you know that they continue to move forward. But you also look at their histories. Pat Shermer is West Coast, you know everything yeah. with Sam Bradford yeah, as well. With Shermer in there, he's going to get the ball of his hand quick. With North Turner, it's like an <laughs> Air Coriel derivative. Yeah. That should have been yeah. the guy pushing it down the field.
2: It, 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 I thought about that too. It's, it's a fascinating point that like the, that three digit. Uh, Scheme where 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 people are you know throwing should be throwing 15 20 yards downfield you know with like a dan fouts did with with and really even the, the vikings did with dante culpepper and randy moss under Scott linehan that's another guy who sort of come from that tree And so uh it's it, it's very interesting that even in a system that's supposed to encourage that teddy was very much uh looking uh for the safer play and in a scheme where where pat that pat Shermer derives from um the West Coast, you would think the opposite. And so, uh, again, that that points a little bit to the idea that maybe it's a little bit of the decision-making from the quarterback uh, that can, that plays a bigger role than, than ever we think.
1: A few more minutes here with Kevin Seifert, ESPN NFL Nation blogger. Uh, what do you make of the NFC overall? We're about to see a Vikings-Rams 7-2 and showdown at U.S. Bank Stadium. The Eagles are in first place. The Saints, I don't know that anybody jumps out as a dominant team except for maybe philadelphia how are you stacking it up right now
2: just i mean like, like everybody's i mean there there's more teams that you would think could be a top three team than there's been in a while um that that's what's, you know probably what six of the top eight teams in the nfl or maybe in the nfc the whereas the afc they're struggling to find six teams that you could project as, as playoff teams right now i think the bills are at number six at the season ended right now so much of the strength of the league right now appears to be in the NFC. Uh, I don't know that anything separates, you know, other than one than one win loss in the record, anything separates the Eagles, the Saints, and the Vikings. Um, I'm waiting to see on the Rams, though. Their schedule that comes up now is uh, much more difficult than what they've experienced so far. And so that they are about to enter a three- or four-game stretch when we really find out um, – if, the, if this is a team that is built for a 16 game playoff race or if they've taken some people by surprise and there'll be some adjustments.
1: Last thing, I was fascinated by your breakdown in terms of the changes to how replay is being adjudicated. Uh, it's yeah. certainly, if you just watch the games, uh, there was the play where it was Tayshawn Gibson, I think, re- recovered the fumble. And mm-hmm. I saw four replays and just, I was like, huh. I, I didn't, you didn't see anything, but then you start to go back in your head of how many times there have been things that look like things that Dean Blandino normally would have been explaining on a Tuesday and saying this is why we couldn't overturn it, even though it looks mm-hmm. like something's mm-hmm. going to happen. Mm-hmm. What what answers have you been able to get in terms of what appears to be uh, a bit of a shift in terms of how they're approaching it?
2: Yeah, and just to review, the the the, the philosophy is supposed to be: they're, they're, you you stay with this call on the field unless there's a clear and obvious. Uh, Uh, evidence that that there was a mistake and that it should be reversed and so they've always wanted to save it for just the obvious mistakes that 50 guys in a bar could be watching and notice that that something got missed and then flip those but uh my you know the theory that has been advanced and i don't think you know can be proved or disproved is that everybody has a little bit of a different perception of what clear and obvious is and people who are now making those decisions, Al Riverone, uh, who's the, the senior vice president of officiating and Russell York, who's now in a newly created uh, position of um, uh, vice president of, of replay, uh, seem to be taking the, the interpretation a little bit more, lit- a little bit less literally than, than what Blandino and, and even Mike Pereira had before them. Um, Mike Pereira never had to make those decisions, but he has since bought on to that philosophy. And so, uh I that's really the only explanation is that you have different people doing it. Uh the philosophy is the same, but everybody maybe has a little bit of a different idea of what that means and they are clearly uh I don't want to say projecting, but in the case of the tajon Gibson uh, thing where he he was ruled to be down by contact, it's it's quite possible that he did come into contact with somebody while he was on in that pile. But you're what we've been trained to do is to is, to, is to see that obviously, and, and be, there'd be no question, but it seems as though that, that they are projecting it and maybe going in a slower motion or maybe spending more time looking at it frame by frame and making a little bit more of an assumption than, than, than Blandino did. And, and maybe that was something that we should have anticipated, that no two people will look at it the exact same way just like no officiating crew sees holding or pass interference exactly the same way, and maybe this is no different.
1: I will correct your title: ESPN National NFL Writer, Kevin Seifert. Oh, I feel like okay. I said blogger with a tone there too. That was not you, intentional.
2: You, you did, but I, you know, that I was what doing, man.
1: <laughs> that was me being lost as I tried to remember exactly what it is you do. And no for worry, whom. thank yeah. you,
2: Kevin. Okay.
1: Kevin Seifert joins the show every Thursday for Talkin' Purple. A John Hyde sports update coming up next. More on the Vikings and Rams later. Tom Pellicero in on the ride.
3: And now in the newsroom, he's back again, John Hyde. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. This update's sponsored by Firestone Complete Auto Care. Keep your car running newer, longer. Come into Firestone Complete Auto Care and get $100 off any purchase of $500 or more. Whatever you drive, drive a Firestone. Uh, baseball news, National League MVP just announced it's Giancarlo Stanton of the Miami Marlins. It was close. Joey Votto of the Reds came in second in the voting. Uh, Stanton. Really? Listen to this. Oh, he had a great year. Well, looking. I know he did, but yeah. they're, he was on a bad team. Well, so Stanton. It's true. Uh, Stanton ended up with 302 points. Votto, 300. Both had 10 first- Wow. Both had 10 first-place votes. Stanton with second, uh, 10 second-place votes. Votto with nine. The American League MVP will be announced in the next 15 minutes or so. And the Marlins are trying to trade him. Yeah. yeah. Trying desperately <laughs> to get rid of him. It's the annual Ooh. five-year purge in Miami. Oh yeah, man. Hmm? Wilder in action tonight at home to play the Predators at the Excel Energy Center. We have high school football semifinals going on at U.S. Bank Stadium in Man Spring Grove beating Stephen Argyle Central High School 27-7. Uh, Caledonia, well, uh, they edged Painesville 49-16. Tonight, uh, right now, we have Winona playing Academy of Holy Angels there in the second quarter. It's tied at 7. And tonight, 6A Maple Grove takes on Eden Prairie. That's a 7 o'clock game. Uh, last night, city leaders, St. Paul, Minnesota United, of course, have big plans for the area around the Major League Soccer Stadium. Uh, city leaders agreed last year to spend $18.4 million on infrastructure. And last night, city council members voted to add another $4 million for facilities in the 34 half acre site at the intersection of University and Snelling Avenues. It's all part of what they're going to call the Midway Neighborhood. Uh, the largest new expense, an additional $2.3 million for a stormwater system that uses captured rain to irrigate the site. The city also agreed to contribute quarter of a million dollars for expenses like sidewalks, lighting, and trees at the so-called Great Lawn. The soccer team will own and maintain the park for 52 years. It'll be publicly available when there are not team events going on. 52, huh? 52 years.
1: I would have have said no more than 51.
3: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why 52, I wonder? Nice even number. I think we need another new stadium. Let's build some more. Why not? Ah. (laughs) An argument between an Alabama and Auburn fan Monday over which team is better? Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, no. Escalated to the point of gunfire, according to the Mobile (laughs) Alabama Of course it did. According to, uh, oh my gosh. according to police, the Alabama fan shot the Auburn fan outside of an Extenda Suites motel about 7 o'clock Monday night. The police report said the male. Wait, sub- wait,
1: wait, hold on. The Extenda Suites, Extenda. not Extended. No.
3: Extenda, the knockoff. Extenda. Extenda Suites, okay. <laughs> according to the police report, the male subject got angry, pulled out a firearm, and struck the victim in the thigh, and then fled. The victim's condition, uh, he'll live. The shooter's whereabouts so are unknown as of this afternoon. Number one Alabama, number six Auburn, set to play in the rivalry uh, rivalry game known as the Iron Bowl on November twenty fifth. The winner will move on to playing the SEC championship game the following weekend, and with a win, could find itself with a spot in so, the college football playoffs. So, was it
0: a it was an Alabama fan that shot the Auburn fan, uh, that's or vice correct. versa? The Alabama
3: okay. fan shot the Auburn fan.
0: Uh we have an issue because somebody deleted Tammy saying, no. "Paul, you got to play your freshmen." You know, Paul Feinbaum show. Uh-huh. Tammy is a diehard oh, yeah. Auburn fan, and she calls in every week and. Somebody deleted my soundbite. Got to play your freshmen. You've got to play your freshmen. Yeah, she loves her some Auburn
3: Tiger football. (laughs) War Eagle Wolves nine and five on the season. After that win last night, they are now off until tomorrow when they will play the Dallas Mavericks.
1: Thank you, Johnny. You bet. One more point on the Vikings quarterbacks. It's part of late hits. Do we still do late hits? Yes. All right, we'll do that next. Tom Pelissero with Verroisi on the right.
0: The Ride with Royce.
3: Come on, join me in this
0: fight against crap. <laughs> join me in the fight against crap. <laughs> That's right. On 1500
1: ESPN. The Ride with Royce now continues. Personal
3: sixty-nine. Offense. He's giving them the business. It's
1: time for late hits. Minneapolis native Larry Fitzgerald. Apparently thinking about coming back for one more season. Multiple reports that he is signing or close to signing a one-year contract extension with oh, the Arizona was there, Cardinals. Was
0: there doubt he was going to, or maybe retire? His deal
1: was up okay. after
0: the season is set to void after this year. So He's having a good sign year, for even though year. Carson Palmer got hurt. Andrew
1: Stan got hurt, and it may be the Blaine Gabbert show oh, coming God, up uh, the this week. Quarterback the is. third stringer is Blaine Gabbert, perhaps oh. getting another, uh, another opportunity. Oh, my goodness.
0: That... Uh... Uh, quick shout out to uh, the University of uh, University of Minnesota men's basketball team with a mm-hmm. big victory last night, 107 to 81 over Niagara. but I wanted to bring it up for this reason. I did not realize Reggie Lynch was one blocked shot shy A quadruple double that is a, I gotta be careful with that. Of the school's first triple double since Michael Thompson in 1972. how is that possible? Wow thats that a quadruple double? Was that's a, a difficult trip? thing to get well, to. Well, there was, a, it I was. I saw it was something double. like he was like a block and like and a and like two assists away from like a quadruple double the or something. So Reavers like has now yeah.
1: butchered the statistic, and uh, we now wait while he reads the paper loudly. Yeah. that's where the sports section went.
0: Good. Yeah, I got it opened right here. up every
1: paper we had in the break room, and not a single one had the sports section in it. All right, where is he Reavers? Has all of them and has
0: read none of them. Reggie Lynch, eighteen points, twelve rebounds, and. Nine blocks, I can't find six assists. So it was a triple double. One blocked shot shy of a triple double. But since 1972, you'd think there that- hadn't been a triple double. No. Not in school. Not okay, so that is surprising. I thought that. Yeah, I, initial he, stat, not he, so much. Even with like you know Chris Humphreys and all these guys that have come through, you'd you figured it happen in well, one of these non-conference games. Chris at Humphreys one point. averaged like half an assist. I was per about game, to say, so did he, he, he ever, was yeah. ever gonna get a triple That's double? A good, did he, he, he ever have an assist for a triple right. double? <laughs> 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 he might have had one
1: at one point. Somebody look. Somebody look up Chris Humphreys' career high in assists. I'm going to probably one. Yeah. Back to the Vikings quarterback situation for a second. I talked with Brian Robinson the other day. I was thinking back while we were while we were talking about the number of quarterbacks that Brian Robinson had to have played with, going back to 2006. I believe was his first year, so he gets the full TJ experience. Brooks Bollinger, a lot of other guys, obviously Favre coming through, and he was making the point to me because I was asking it's such a leadership position. Why hasn't the uncertainty this ongoing week to week thing? Why has that not disrupted how this team is playing? And part of what he said was we have to know this is a good situation. Like whoever whoever's back there, we got to have that guys back. And his point was, you know, we got three guys we can win with. The last time the Vikings had a three quarterback, three-headed quarterback monster would have been 2013. In terms of starting three guys in the season, which potentially could happen with Bridgewater, it was Christian Ponder, it was Matt Castle, and it
0: was Josh Freeman. Oh, God. And that team went five, ten, and one and everybody got fired. Here, I thought you were going to go back to Gannon, Wade Wilson, and Tommy Kramer (laughs) way back in the day. It would have been like 91, wasn't it? Well, I think the last time that all three of those guys—and Rich told us this a couple of weeks ago. I think it might have been like 88 or 89. I I can't remember the exact year.
1: If you got into a situation where Bridgewater played later this season— and you had three different quarterbacks helping the team make the playoffs. That is a short list you're talking oh, about yeah, yeah. in terms of times that has happened in NFL history.
0: Well, and look at even just a couple of years ago, the year the Broncos won the Super Bowl, we were talking about two quarterbacks that got them there, and that was kind of unheard of. Mm-hmm. With uh, with your guy, Brock Osweiler. By the way, I just looked it up. Chris Humphreys averaged in 29 games for his lone season with the Golden Gophers, 0.7 assists a game. Wow. That seems high. Yeah, I, th- I kind of thought the same <laughs> I thing. I would have guessed less. Yeah, yeah. 0.7 assists. Man, he was only there one year. One, one year. One year. Yep. yeah.
1: The stiffest player I've ever seen play for the Gophers. Still
0: Just, in the NBA though, to this day. Is he really? I think so. Sort I mean, of. Right. Sort he played.
1: Yeah. I remember he played in the preseason with the Sixers or something and got booed mercilessly yeah. through an entire game until he finally went to
0: the bench, in threes. He's, there was a stretch. Oh, my God, you're right. He's still with the Atlanta Hawks. The yeah. Hawks. Wow. There was a stretch. He had a couple of years, a few years ago with like the, I mean, the Nets were terrible at the time, but where he was, at least from a number standpoint, he was pretty good. I mean, he's had a semi-successful NBA career compared to other recent Gophers that we've had come through.
1: So. Being the 12th man on an NBA roster is kind of like being the 11th man on a Major League Baseball pitching staff where I don't watch enough of either sport to not occasionally have a game on and then go, is that? No. He's been, uh, he's been retired
0: for five years. There's is no it, way he's still in the league. It can't possibly be. But with the good thing about both of those positions, guaranteed contracts in mm-hmm. both sports.
1: Francisco Liriano appeared in a postseason game this year, didn't yeah, he? Through a third of an
0: inning. For Houston. Again. Really? Yeah. He's still, he's still there? And that's, oh, okay. What's funny about that, too, is... Their bullpen was just taxed, yeah. And AJ Hinch was like, "Oh my God, I gotta have somebody get a left-handed batter out." And Francisco got him. He's like, "Yep, righty, okay, you're you're out. Bringing somebody else. Johan Santana hiding somewhere. Didn't he try a comeback with the Pirates or something? He tried a comeback, didn't he, with Baltimore or somebody? A couple For of all of years we know, ago? he appeared
1: in fifty two sure, games he this might've. season and had a <laughs> seventeen ERA. Thank you to Kevin Seifer, Tom Chorsky, Chris Ravers, Manny Hill, and Tom Pelissero. See ya.